Just a quick one, Ice Coffeteers, as I soak up the remaining March bandwidth, this time clearing up some terms relating to clothing. Antarctica is cold. It's one of the first things any list of superlatives will tell you about the continent, before adding something about the overall dryness and the wind, and then bandying about some statistics about freshwater and precipitation. Even a casual glance at a globe will give you the news, with the whole region represented in shades of white and blue as a proxy for ice and snow, so you can tell Antarctica's chilly without visiting it. As the medical episode outlined, cold causes problems for our extremities and our core body temperature if we don't guard ourselves from exposure to the wind and snow and low temperatures. In James Cook's day, officers and the highest echelons of petty officers, such as the bosun, carpenter and gunner, wore uniform frock coats and white breeches, in line with uniform regulations instituted in 1748, and generally bought on their own coin, and so sometimes running to the raggedy end of the sartorial spectrum. Seamen of the day wore ship-issued clothing, usually whatever the purser could pick up on the cheap, and so lacked any uniformity of style or utility. Favoured petty officers might inherit a pensioned-off greatcoat, depleted of the insignia of rank, but for the most part seamen were expected to be cold and wet and not complain. Cook, noted as an exception to the Royal Navy mean of brutality towards its employees, issued fear-naught clothing to keep his crew operating effectively in the cold. Heavy cloth comprising layered pressed wool. This material is still in use for firefighting clothing, but in Cook's day it was out and out the warmest gear anyone could hope for while working at sea, which is why it was only issued in dire need and recalled when that need ebbed, the fear-naught going back into storage in warmer climes. Fear-naught cloth remained the state of the art in cold-weather apparel for many years, but repeated failures to find the Northwest Passage saw Royal Navy sailors exposed to polar conditions in poorly suited clothing, too often for the lessons on offer among the Inuit to go ignored indefinitely, and reindeer skin clothing gradually made some inroads into equipment schedules. Heroic-era expeditions made extensive use of gabardine, a close-woven fabric of high-quality worsted wool. The fabric, patented by Thomas Burberry in 1879, uses a twill weave, the diagonal threads providing great strength per unit weight and excellent windproofing, but with a more comfortable drape and greater breathability than rubberized fabrics with equivalent weatherproof properties. Clothing was cut with an eye for minimizing creases where snow might accumulate and to minimize gaps through which wind might enter though this sometimes resulted in articles difficult to don and doff. Embellishments and alterations, combined with articles brought south from individual wardrobes, make photographs of such expeditions appear motley, ill-uniformed teams. But this is true of any party sent into the field for extended periods, even if the equipment is identical at the kickoff of a deployment. In the heroic era, most expeditioners quickly became adept at wielding a needle and thread, as the ability to repair and alter equipment not only increased comfort, as mass-manufactured kit gradually conformed to individual shapes and needs, but also saved lives, as tents, clothing and sleeping bags disintegrated under the harsh conditions. Balaclavas, woolen hoods with a face hole, or, in true tism style, 
mouth and eye holes, and taking their name from the town near Sevastopol, used as the British and French landing port during the Crimean War, were common cold-weather gear, and broad-brimmed felt hats proved popular in warmer conditions. Captain Oates, handsome to begin with, looks the very picture of a hard-as-nails Antarctican in his submariner's jumper, I suspect he took with him on his own coin, there being almost no consistency among Scott's crew's base garments. Inuit-style reindeer skins, with some wolf skins tried for sleeping suits and found wanting, were employed as mitts, boots, sleeping bags and, in Amundsen's case, entire outer layers of clothing. Finesco boots, or is it Finesco, already receiving many mentions in the series, comprise reindeer heads sewn into boot shape with gut fibre. The reindeer forehead, where the animal's fur grows thickest, forms the sole of the boot, offering good traction for moving forward, but, as noted in the death of George Vince, little in the way of lateral traction. A lining of dried sennegrass, a sedge common to Arctic shorelines, provided an extra layer of insulation, and drew perspiration moisture away from woolen socks worn against the skin. The Senegrass liner could be removed and hung up before bed, and the frozen water droplets shaken free before donning once more. While we're on the topic of footwear, it's usually easy to check your hands for frostbite, but less so your feet. We use the dexterity of our upper limb termini a lot, so the clothing we wear over them is designed to be easy to don and doff. Taking boots and layers of socks off, on the other hand, is time-consuming and chilling to both the feet being inspected and the hands necessarily uncovered to allow sufficient finesse of movement to actually get the job done. So feet tend to get neglected, only receiving attention at the end of a day's work, immediately prior to insertion in the fuggy end of a sleeping bag. Poor feet. A piece of advice I received from Spang, hi Spang, is that it's better to wear two layers and keep things loose, than three layers and make things tight. The idea being that with blood already restricted in the extremities by the body's response to cold, you need to keep clothing loose enough to allow what blood your vascular system is willing to cede to your footsies, maximum opportunity to bring them some warmth. Intuitively, more layers equals more better. But cramming your foot into a boot with maximum layers may actually prove counterproductive, as no amount of insulation can contain heat that isn't there in the first place. It's your blood that carries heat to your extremities, and that requires some space. Not a lot, but don't use your time in Antarctica as your opportunity to take up foot binding. Moving to the modern day, but sticking with footwear. Modern Antarcticans use a variety of footwear to match conditions and tasks. Mukluk boots, taking their name from a soft footwear made of skins, used by the Inuit and Yupik, but not bearing much in common with their namesakes other than that they go on your feet, afford insulation, wind protection up the calves, and soles extending beyond the shape of the uppers to provide a saw-like edge you can use to kick snow steps into a slope. They comprise an outer shell and an inner liner that you can take out to dry, and you can work in them in most conditions with just a single pair of rag woolen socks inside them. The hard sole means they take crampons, sets of steel spikes you can strap to your footwear, 
well if you need extra traction to work safely on slopes or polished ice. Seeing as my interests lie at sea level, I usually prefer Sorel snow boots. Less hard case, but lighter and more comfortable. They are again an outer shell and inner liner, and one pair of socks is enough for most summer work. You can't kick ice steps or wear crampons with them, but if you're working on the sea ice, you generally don't need to. The Antarcticans I met at McMurdo Station were mostly issued bunny boots. Some chose to take their own footwear, but many got around in these white rubber boots of a design dating back to the Korean War, and I suspect many pairs of these apparently indestructible apparel date back to that conflict. They provide insulation by sandwiching an inch of felted wool between the rubber layers of the shell, making them warm down to extreme low temperatures with just a single layer of woolly socks. The boots feature a valve on the sides that you're supposed to open when flying, so the air trapped in the insulation layer doesn't hurt your feet as it expands with altitude. You're usually expected to take your outdoor footwear off when you head indoors, so you also need a pair of slippers or plimsolls with you for getting around base. Personally, I'm a fan of the Dunlop Volley and don't mind giving them free advertising because nostalgia and comfort. Any synthetic footwear when rubbed over hard-wearing synthetic base carpet in the dry Antarctic air, will generate a strong static charge very quickly. This can hurt your fingernails if you let it build up a lot before you touch something metallic, and can damage electronics if you touch anything expensive before discharging yourself, so people quickly pick up the habit of touching stanchions or bracing frames with the back of a hand every few steps. It's easy to spot someone recently returned from time at an Antarctic base as they get antsy if they can't find a metallic surface on which to discharge their non-existent charge. Modern Antarctic clothing runs much to the woolen or polypropylene thermals, polar fleece salopettes and jerseys, Gore-Tex overpants and goose-down stuffed parkas with associated silly hat with chin strap or lanyard to wear under the fur-rimmed hood that generates a dead space in front of your face when you're out in the wind. Polar fleece neck gaiters and headbands are de rigueur, as are polarised sunglasses or ski goggles. Insulating gloves fit under Gore-Tex outer mitts, held on a lanyard yoke that fits over your neck to keep the damn things from blowing away any time you have to use your fingers. There's a right and a wrong way to wear the lanyard system, and you only get it wrong once, upon which you go out in the wind and near strangle yourself. After that incident, you wear it correctly and laugh knowingly at the people who get it wrong subsequently, fingies that they are. Woolen balaclavas are to awesomes, though I was never in tism. Riggers gloves and insulated carharts provide durable warmth and workplace PPE for tradespeople operating outdoors but recent hipster adoption of blue-collar clothing can cause uncertainty. Are you talking to a ten-winter veteran plumber or an artisan roto-molder? Who can tell these days? Look for telltale signs of beard maintenance. Antarcticans grow beards because they're warm and low-maintenance. Hipsters grow beards because beards are countercultural, though this may shift as the lead hipsters notice beard conformity and shift away from it. Among hipsters... Maintenance levels vary. Scruffo beards could go either way, but if you're speaking to a carefully trimmed, well-oiled beard, it's probably attached to a hipster acting as facial hair life support.
While at Scott Base, I noticed a clothing hierarchy. Overwinterers get nicer gear than anyone just there for the summer. After them, the VIPs get the next best stuff, then the principal investigators, then the media, then the base staff, then me. Sartorial monotony is regularly broken up by fancy dress parties. While at Scott Base, I attended a beach party, a pea party, and the best Halloween party I've ever attended, dressing myself respectively as a lifeguard, a palindrome, and Bender Bending Rodriguez. Where almost everyone at Scott Base was dressed in government-issued blue parkas, everyone at McMurdo Station had a red parker issued to them other than media, who seemed to be given black kit. The Italian researchers heading off to Evans Cove wore beautifully cut, tailor-made ECWs, making the rest of us look like Spike Milligan's proverbial sacks of shit tied up with string. Shoutouts this episode to Nate Undercuffler, listening in California, to my cousin Chris, listening on his road trip, to Aaron, nice to hear from you again, and to Stephanie, who's made the move to Iceland, and it sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. Look forward to following your adventures. Take care and appreciate your coffee. Mm-hmm.